so nice to see you. You know, um, we live in a world of rivalries, don't we? Um, okay, let's, let's have a vote. How many of you are ducks? Raise your hand. And how many of you are beavers? Okay, I have to say the morning class, most of them were beavers. I think you guys are a little heavier on the duck side. But you know what rivalry feels like, right? Ducks and beavers, it's a big deal. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one. Think quietly to yourself. Look at the next picture. <laughs> how many of you are Republicans? Don't raise your hand. Democrats, conservatives, liberals. That's a rivalry, isn't it, <laughs> in our culture? Okay, this one, next one, you can raise your hand. How many of you are Coke drinkers? How many of you are Pepsi drinkers? <laughs> How many of you, like me, go to a restaurant and say, I'll take a Diet Coke? Oh, you only have Diet Pepsi? No, thank you. <laughs> we have our preferences, don't we? So there are rivalries like, like these. So in sports, rivalries actually can um, make teams train harder. It can make the competition of a good sports, a sporting event, can, can actually help teams employ greater strategy because there's something at stake to win when there's a good, healthy rivalry. Um, in politics, I, I hope that competition and rivalry makes politicians think more strategically or think more about the greater good. In food manufacturers, I think competition or rivalry makes companies strive for the best taste experience, so we get the best of the best. But rivalries are not always harmless, are they? We know that there are rivalries in ethnic groups that become very painful. There are rivalries in gender competitions, and um, especially in the workplace right now in our culture, there's... there's there's some of that tension that comes, men and women working together, and that's hurtful at times. There are rivalries between nations like North and South Korea. There are rivalries between people groups like the Palestinians and the Israelites. There are rivalries between religious groups like the Christians and the Muslims. There are even rivalries within Christian denominations, which end up hurting people. And so What's beautiful about the cross of Christ is that it's a reminder that Jesus has made a way to reconcile all rivalries by his blood. In fact, do you know that when we look at the cross, just the shape of the crucifix is a picture of reconciliation? For example, the vertical beam is a picture of the reconciliation that we experience, people and God we are reconciled to God in our relationship with him, and that vertical beam is a reminder of that. And the horizontal beam is a picture of our reconciliation be between each other. And of course, in this passage, we're going to look at Jews and Gentiles, but all people are reconciled as one body in Christ. So it's beautiful when we look at the cross, we can see it as such a, a visible symbol of reconciliation. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, and he is the one who, who can make enemies like the Jews and the Gentiles into friends simply by joining us together in one family. And so in our passage today that we're looking at, Paul is addressing Gentiles. And so you know what? How many of you in this room are Gentiles? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So this is a passage that he has written to the Ephesian Gentiles. So we can listen to this. This is for us. This is a reminder for us as well. And it's by God's grace, 
Paul's going to tell us that we who were once alienated from God, from his people, and from his promises have been brought near to him by the cross of Christ. So we've been united with God's people, with the Jews. We've been united in Christ into a relationship of peace because Jesus is our ultimate peacemaker. And he makes peace possible where there was once conflict. We're going to see that as we look in at scripture today about the peace that was made between the Jews and the Gentiles. But I want you to think about your life right here and right now. Where is there a relationship in your life where you need peace? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's a relationship that hits really close to home. It's behind the closed doors of your house and you need peace in that relationship. Maybe it's with a child, maybe an adult child, maybe a teenager. I think anybody who has a teenager in this room, peace is going to be probably your number one most important thing because teenagers typically are not peaceful residents in the home unless you have a very special one. Little kids, maybe there's peace you need in a relationship there. Maybe it's a coworker. There's tension. There's animosity, and you need peace in that relationship. Or a neighbor, somebody that lives right next door, and there's, there's, there's not a peace in that relationship. Where is it in your life right now? Will you think, and if you want to scribble just down the first thing that comes to your mind on your paper to think about, I really need peace in this relationship, and we'll come back to that later on. Paul's going to speak to us in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 about the power of the cross. And he's going to talk to us about the power of the cross to turn enemies into friends. And so today what we're going to learn is that the cross reconciles us to God and to each other. The cross just reconciles us to God and to each other. And this is a really complex passage. Did you find that this week as you were doing your lesson? You know, we got used to those two little verses that we got to think about. And now we had 11 verses and it was very complex. So I wanted to teach you a very simple way to remember this passage so that you can tell somebody else. Maybe your husband, your friend, your children. Here's three phrases to help you remember. Remember. But now. So then, remember that you too were once alienated from God, strangers to God and to his promises. But now, through the cross of Christ, God has made peace with you through Christ by the shedding of his blood. So then, you have a new identity now as God's people, as the temple of his Holy Spirit, as a member of the community of God's church. So remember But now, so then, we're going to break that down into three parts. So let's dive in first to Genesis, Genesis, Ephesians, (laughs) holy cow, 2, 11 and 12. We're going to talk about alienation. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country where you feel completely alienated? I'm not talking Europe. I'm not even talking Mexico. Canada doesn't count. I'm talking some place where you felt like you were absolutely in a foreign place. Yes, several of you have. So that means when you look out the window and you see the landforms, nothing looks familiar. There's, there, when, you, when you listen to the language, it's not even recognizable. Maybe you're afraid people are going to be hostile towards you or look at you with disdain. You stand out like a sore thumb. Have you ever had that experience where you just feel like, I feel like I'm on a different planet? I had this experience about four years ago when I first went to Rwanda. And on my first trip there, we had an interruption in our travel schedule, and we ended up being diverted to Qatar. Have you ever been, anybody, you've been to Qatar? 
Okay, it's a really strange place. Um, it's in the Middle East, and uh, it was not in my plans. Kathleen's husband, Mike, was with us. Uh, it was not in our plans to go to Qatar on this trip. But what happened was we landed in the airport, and we had about eight hours that we had to stay there in the middle of the night until we could catch our plane, completely not how we had planned our trip to Rwanda. Well, landing in Qatar, the... The land is completely flat, and it's super dry and dusty, and there are no landforms. There's no way to get your bearings. There are no mountains. There are no hills. There's no water. It's just everywhere you look, it's flat, and everything is dry and dusty, and so you can't even tell where you are. That's very disorienting when you're from this part of the country where everywhere you look, you know, oh, that's the oceans at the, oh, behind those mountains, and Mount Hood, is that's east. It was very disorienting. And then the language is so foreign. There's nothing recognizable about the language. It's not like um, even, you know, Latin languages or even Hispanic languages where there's words that you can kind of figure out what people are saying. There was no way to understand the language. The people were dressed very differently. They acted very differently. They sort of it felt like we were in a foreign, really in a foreign country. And, of course, when we landed, it was at night, and it was 110 degrees and then when the sun rose in the morning, it was 120. I mean, it was so hot. And it was just the strangest experience. And we were sequestered in this airport. We didn't have paperwork to be in Qatar, so we had to stay in the terminal. We couldn't go anywhere. And, um, and then the airport, you know, in, in the Middle East, there's so much money that what they build is, is futuristic. And so this airport was so incredible that it felt like we were literally on a, in a space station in a foreign galaxy far, far away. <laughs> it was just the most disorienting feeling. And I, I remember feeling like very far away from my family and very far away from my homeland. I really felt alienated. And in the same way, Paul in Ephesians 2 is reminding Gentiles that we are all in the state of alienation before, from God before we come to saving faith by grace in Jesus Christ. So listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we talked about this a few weeks ago, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were disobedient to the word of God, when we were doomed to eternal judgment, we were like strangers living in a foreign land. We were alienated from God and we were alienated from God's people and we were alienated from God's promises. Now, Paul in particular, he is talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus. And he's talking to them, and they are very alienated at this time, not only from him, but they're alienated from the Jews. And there were a lot of ethnic tensions at this time, and they were running very, very high. But we know that Jews and Gentiles have historically had a lot of tension in their relationships. Do you realize it was only 70 years ago when Hitler's Germany was happening on the face of the earth and, and hatred and animosity was spinning out of control and people were being killed for their affiliations. We know how this tension between Jews and Gentiles can escalate to the point of terrible atrocities in the world. And so what has fueled this ongoing animosity between Jews and Gentiles? What, what is the base for that? 
And it's rooted in the fact that God specifically chose the Jewish people out of all the peoples of the earth for his sovereign purposes. He simply chose them to do a work through them. And why did he choose the Jews? Well, if we go back to Genesis 12, we can see where it all began. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you looked at this in your lesson this week. God specifically called one man out of his homeland, a place called Ur. His name was Abram, whom God changed his name to Abraham. He called him out of his homeland. Ur was from a family of pagan worshipers. He was not a, a religious guy. God just chose him. As we looked at last week, that we, it's not by our works, it's not by anything that we come to faith in Christ other than by God's grace. And this is that example. Abraham wasn't doing anything better than anyone else to deserve being called. He simply was called and he responded. And God called him and he said this to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there are three promises that God made to Abram. He said, first of all, I've got a land for you. So I want you to come out of where you are and bring your family, and I'm going to take you to a place which is going to be called the promised land, which is a land for you and your descendants. And then he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to multiply your descendants. You're going to become a nation. And throughout, everybody on the earth is going to be blessed through you. Well, from Abraham came the Israelites, the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel came the Messiah, the promised Savior. And so truly, God was honored, honored his promises. The thing that's interesting is that the promise that God made to Abraham was an unconditional promise. So it actually wasn't based on how Abraham responded. We know that Abraham sometimes didn't respond in faith. He tried to pass his wife off as his sister. He questioned how he would ever have a son and took his handmaiden. I mean, there were lots of times when Abraham clutched in his faith. But he believed God. He believed him, though he didn't understand what God was doing. And so God, and God was faithful to his promise, not because Abraham was the most righteous guy on the planet, but because he was, he chose Abraham for his sovereign purposes. And Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed God in the hard places. So um, God made Abraham and his descendants the nation of Israel, and his plan was that through, through Abraham, the Gentile nations would be blessed. The Gentile nations would get a savior to believe in and receive salvation. And this, so this his intention was that all would, all would be blessed through what he was doing through the Jews. Now, when he made this covenant promise with the Jews, with, through Abraham's lineage, there was a sign that marked these people as God's own people, and it was the sign of circumcision. It was the sign of cutting the foreskin, and this was a way to mark God's own people, Israel. So there were real differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. We can't say, well, there was no difference. There was a real difference between these two people groups that led to the tension that they experienced in their relationship. So the Jews, they had the revelation of God. 
through Moses, Abraham, the patriarchs, they had personal interaction with God. The Shekinah glory, the temple, their whole history was recorded so that the whole world can know God. They had special revelation. And they were set apart through circumcision. They were an identified people outwardly that they belonged to God. They were spiritually different because they had a system of sacrifices. They understood sin. They understood how sin separated them from God. And they understood from a very early time that the only way to have forgiveness for sin was through the blood of an innocent animal that was shed to pay the penalty of sin, pointing, of course, to the Messiah. But they had this whole understanding of the sacrificial system and the problem of sin. And um, they, under, they demonstrated to the world the whole act of God forgiving through receiving those sacrifices. They also had the Ten Commandments. They had the moral law. They knew what God had to say about how they should live their lives. And that was incredible because God being their maker, God being our maker, God being the one who has the handbook to know how human life works best, it's by following the Ten Commandments. So they knew not to worship other gods, honor their mother and father, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't profane the name of the Lord. They had all of this wonderful insight into how to live their lives. And um, they worshiped the one true God, and they wrote the scriptures. They recorded all of this for the world. They had such an important calling. Meanwhile, the Gentiles were worshiping pagan gods, and they had many gods, and they were afraid of their gods, and they had idols that they worshiped. And they even sacrificed their children on the altar to worship these idols. And so they were living under the oppression of evil and darkness. Okay, do you see how different these people groups were? This is why there was so much tension between the two of them. The problem was that the Jews became really prideful in their status before the Gentiles. They, they knew they were set apart, but um, they ended up creating, actually adding to the tension because rather than sharing this good news with the Gentiles, they would call them names. They would call them the uncircumcised, which is actually doesn't sound that bad to us, but it literally means the foreskin. So they called them this name, and they treated them, you know, badly because they said, well, the Gentiles were um, full of sexual immorality, and they were religiously ignorant, and so they would name-call them. And then the, Jew, the Gentiles thought the Jews were mutilating their own bodies by, by being circumcised, and they ridiculed them. Why would you do this to serve your God? And so there was this back and forth of this terrible relationship of animosity. And so throughout history, this name-calling continued and with these two people groups. That's the tension that existed. Okay, so now Paul is now speaking to the Gentile believers. These are Gentiles like you and me who have received Christ. They've understood now that they're in Christ. But he's telling them that they need to go back and remember because there's still tension between these people groups. So he's calling them, wait, Gentiles, you need to remember who you once were apart from Christ. And he tells them a couple of things. He goes, remember when you were separated from Christ. Remember when you were, when you were strangers to God and you were worshiping idols and you were worshiping false gods and you were, um, you were worshiping the goddess Diana. Remember that? Remember who you were. And then he says to them, remember when you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So that means remember when you weren't included in, in um any of God's promises to Israel. Do you know that God never made a covenant promise with the Gentiles? 
He never did. He made covenant promises with the Jews and the Gentiles were excluded. Now they were always, God's plan was always to include them, but, or to include us, I should say. But, um, but God never specifically made a covenant promise to Gentiles. He made it to the Jews and we're grafted in. We're included into that. So he's like, remember when you were outside of those promises and you didn't have anything to do with them? And then he says, um, remember when you had no hope? Because they followed after their Greek philosophers. And their Greek philosophers were powerless to save them. Their Greek philosophers had no solution to the problem of sin and shame. They had no hope of a coming Messiah and King. There was nothing to feel excited about following their Greek philosophies. So there was no hope for them. He's like, remember that? And then he says, remember when you were without God? Remember when you were estranged from God? You had all your little gods, your little idols that were powerless, but you didn't know the one true God? Do you remember that? Remember when you had great fear, when you feared evil and death? Now, in contrast of this life that they lived, the Jews, they, had their, they were recipients of the promise, God's own people. They lived with hope. They had the system of sacrifices, and they lived with this constant anticipation of the Messiah that was going to come. But do you know that God had designed it this way, that he separated the Jews to have this very different life so that the Gentiles would be able to receive salvation? His plan always was the, Gentile, the Jews would be a light of truth and of revelation to the Gentiles. They would live in such a way that the Gentile nations would see the one true God of Israel and understand the problem of sin, and they would believe in the coming Messiah. That was always, and when Jesus came, of course, we know that Jesus came for all, Jew and Gentile. And so even as, as I think about when Jesus went to the well and he met with a Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman was half Jew, half Gentile, he told her that salvation was coming from the Jews. He said to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The problem was that the Jews were so often hypocritical with their faith, and they were such poor witnesses. They not only forgot about the blessings that they had in God, but um, they actually were tempted to worship like the Gentiles. So many times in their history, they forgot the one true God and they followed after pagan idolatry and temple prostitution and they fell into all this stuff and then they lost the blessing and they were a terrible witness to the Gentiles. They were terrible in their example and they were terrible in their attitude and really it was just a big mess until Jesus came. And here's what God says to us. This is what I think the truth is. I, I think it's so sad how the Jewish witness was so dimmed by their unfaithfulness to God. But God is telling us to remember that we were all alienated apart from God apart from Christ. Remember, we were all alienated from God apart from Christ. No one is better than the other. No one is more righteous. No one is more worthy. We were all in a state of alienation from God apart from Christ. Can you remember a time in your life when you were without hope? Can you remember a time when you didn't know God, when you were lost, maybe when sin had such a stronghold on your life? I can remember that in my own life. And do you know that God always calls us to remember 
Remembering is one of God's key commandments all through Scripture. You know, in the Old Testament, he tells his people, Israel, he's like, remember. Remember how I saved you from Egypt? Remember the plagues? Remember how I parted the Red Sea? Remember how I carried you through the wilderness and took you to the promised land and defeated all your enemies? Remember how I was with you in the Shekinah glory? And he tells his people, stop and have these feasts and festivals and remember my faithfulness to you. You need to remember. Do you know why we need to remember? Because we're so simple-minded. We're so short-sighted. We don't remember how faithful God has been. We celebrate Christmas and Easter so we can remember that God sent his son into the world and Jesus died on a cross. You know, if we didn't celebrate those things, I bet we'd forget. But you know what even is more precious is when we go to the Lord's table on Sunday and we take communion. He says, remember that I shed my body on a cross for you and I shed my blood to cover your sins. And we need to remember because we forget And so God calls us back over and over again. You have to remember this. You have to remember how faithful that I've been to you. You have to remember my promises. We have to remember. And let me tell you that if we don't remember, we'll become prideful. We'll think we're all that. We'll think that somehow we deserve salvation or we deserve this relationship with God or God chose us over someone else because we were better. We will lose our perspective But when we remember, if you can challenge yourself to go back and remember the most recent time where you were without God, if you will remember or you will think of who you would have become if God had not rescued you when he did, that is what will propel your heart to worship. When you think about it and you think about what he saved you from and who he saved you to become, That is what will stir your heart to worship. That is what will bring in you that sense of deep gratitude and thanksgiving for who God is and cause your heart to soar for what he's done for you. It's so important that we remember. When we look back and remember that we were all alienated from God apart from Christ, then we move forward in life with humility and faith. Well, let's talk about reconciliation in verses 13 through 18. The word reconcile means to bring together again. And isn't there such a sweetness in our own human relationships when we've been in in a fight with our husband and God brings us together again or with a sibling or with a parent, with somebody that we love and there's been estrangement and then there's that moment of real reconciliation. So Paul says now that in the same way, we who've been alienated from God and from each other are brought together again in Christ. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So do you notice that, but now, just a few weeks ago we had, but God, Paul loves to use words to shock us into reality. And he's saying, but now the Gentiles who put their faith in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, we experience all the benefits of the cross. Because the reality is that sin separates Sin tears apart. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from each other. Sin disintegrates our own personalities. You know, people who, who, and even ourselves, we know that there's times when we just feel really disintegrated. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I do want to do? There's just disintegration. That's sin. Sin makes us double-minded. It makes us hypocritical. It helps us to compartmentalize in bad ways so that we're not integrated. 
But now, he says, but now we who were far off have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is, he's saying, you Gentiles who were far off have been brought near. And you might be wondering, well, have Gentiles ever been brought near to God before this? And yes, there were many Gentiles in the Old Testament times before this that were brought near, but it was always on an individual basis. Salvation wasn't open to the Gentiles the way it is now. It was individual. So if you think back to the Old Testament, when, when a, we call them proselytes, when a non-Jewish person witnessed the God of Israel doing something powerful or, or being powerful amongst his people, then there would be like a sense of a person stirring to say, I have faith in their God. I want to be part of their people. There are actually three women in the genealogy of Christ who fit this category. Tamar was a Gentile, Rahab was a Gentile, and Ruth. Three of the five women in the genealogy of Christ were outsiders who believed in the God of Israel and, and were grafted into God's family before it was as it is now. So he's saying, but now all Gentiles are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. And this was always God's plan, as I said before. And we can even go back to Isaiah and see how Isaiah the prophet spoke about this in Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. He says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's always been God's intention that all peoples who came to worship him would be welcomed into his house. So what was it then that created this fierce tension between the Jews and the Gentiles beside the things I've already said? It was the law. It was the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, plus all of the ordinances that were added on to that. And so the Jews, they ate different foods. They dressed in different clothes. They had different worship styles. They had different feasts. They didn't blend in with the Gentile culture. They stood out because they followed this law, which was added to over the years and became very burdensome, but it kept them separated from their culture. But Paul's telling us that Jesus's death and resurrection fulfilled all the requirements of the law and the prophets, and now all people are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, not by following laws. The sacrificial system that the Jews were following is complete. No one needs to sacrifice animals at the temple. Jesus's sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for sin. That system is over. Jews and Gentiles don't need to be divided anymore through these outward behaviors, through these outward fulfillments of the law. His own blood on the cross is what forgave sins once and for all. So now, today, the only thing that separates people in our day is unbelief in Christ. It's the only thing. Because then the problem of sin exists again. If, if for a person who doesn't receive Christ as their Savior, doesn't accept the blood of Christ that covers our sins, there's separation between that person and God. There isn't peace. And there isn't peace with God's people until forgiveness 
with God has been made. It's the only thing that separates people from God and from each other, from other believers, is unbelief in Christ. Jesus is the way who makes a way for us to have peace with God. And this is what Paul talks about next when he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul is explaining how Jesus is the one who tore down those dividing walls between God and us and between God and each other. This wall, of course, the Jews knew exactly, and the Gentiles, they knew exactly what he was talking about because this wall was a a literal wall at the temple. The Gentiles had their own court, and they had to stay in their space. Hilariously, the wall was only four feet tall, so they could look over the wall and see what the Jews were doing, bringing sacrifices and worshiping. So it, wasn't, it was funny. It was like, if you really wanted to keep people away, wouldn't you build a wall tall enough that no one could see what was going on? But instead it was like, you can't come in, but you can see what we're doing over there. The Jews could worship over in their space, but the Gentiles had to stay in their space. And so there was this wall that separated them. And, um, and, in fact, there were signs posted all around. That's a copy of what was on the sign, that basically if a foreigner, if a Gentile crossed the wall, that they would be killed for, for crossing over. Now, spiritually, that wall between Jew and Gentile was demolished when Jesus died on the cross for all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. It was demolished for all. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, giving access for all people to come before God through Christ. The wall was torn down spiritually when Jesus died on the cross in about 33 A.D. But physically, the wall was destroyed in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. So now it's gone. Um, But it's been gone spiritually since Christ died for our sins. Now, how did this Paul say this wall was, was abolished spiritually? He says, well, it was abolished when the law was abolished. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed the moral law, because Jesus was without sin, because he was the perfect sacrifice, he fulfilled the law and the prophets because of all of that. The law was completed. It was finished. It was fulfilled. Of course, we still have the moral law, but we don't live by, no one is saved by following the law. Um, Now, Jesus forgives our trespasses and trespasses, and he's the one who forgives our sins. Um, There's no more condemnation on us because of the law. He has has, um, abolished that legal demand. And the second thing is that he's made a new humanity. He says that, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So with the law abolished, which separated now Jews and Gentiles, are one man, a new man in Christ. God brings two people together in peace, like a a new human race, not divided by ethnic groups, but united in Christ. He says that when he says, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus brings people together in a newness of life. 
so we can live in unity with God and with each other. Why? Next verse. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we all have one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We all have one Father, God, and one Savior, Jesus, which brings us all together into one body. And this is all because of of God, of Jesus' work on the cross. Aren't you glad that you can come boldly to God? Just you? You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to do a system of sacrifices and rituals. You have access to him through the Spirit and by the Son. So the truth here is that, but now, Jesus is our peacemaker who enables us to make peace with others. He's our peacemaker. He's made peace between peoples. Peace between groups, peace between individuals, peace in marriages, peace in families. And often we think of peace as absence of conflict, don't we? We think, well, if there's no conflict, there's peace. But do you know that nations can actually lay down their weapons and still be at war? Cold War. There's lots of hostility that happens even when there's no active conflict. Or married couples can stop fighting but seethe in silence, can't they? There can be war even though there's no outward display of conflict. True peace is defined as oneness. It's not a truce, and it's not just a silence. It's a deep harmony that signifies a genuine unity of relationship. So peace is oneness and a deep harmony that signifies a genuine unity in relationship. I can't help but think of my marriage when I give you that definition because um, we had many years where there was fighting and hostility and seething anger and and separate bedrooms and unkind words. And it, it was full of conflict, extraordinarily painful. But God has brought peace And it started with each of us turning our eyes to the Lord and receiving peace in our relationship with him and surrendering our hearts to him. And and as God poured his peace into us, then we had peace to give to each other. We we came together in a oneness and and a harmony and a true unity that is beyond what I ever imagined possible. And it's a miracle. It's nothing that we've done. It's what God has done in and through us. It's such a satisfying peace. And it's no wonder that Isaiah in Isaiah 9-6, when he was prophesying about the coming Savior, that he called him the Prince of Peace. Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Are you experiencing this kind of peace in your relationship with God? Can you honestly say you have no fear? You, have, or you are completely at peace. You know that you have nothing to be ashamed of, that your sins have been forgiven, that between you and God, you have peace. Can you honestly say that's exactly what you are experiencing? And what about um, relationships? Where are the relationships that are hostile and antagonistic where you really need peace? How might God use you as an instrument to facilitate peace? Maybe it's in a relationship that you have or it's in one that you're a witness to. The Bible challenges us to be peacemakers in a very anxiety-ridden world. We live in a world where people are unraveling because there's so much happening that is scary. Scary in our own country, scary internationally. This morning there was a 7.9 earthquake off 
the coast of Alaska, that people were running for their lives with blaring sirens and, and tsunami warnings down the coast. You know, it's scary. It's scary world. It's fires and mudslides and, and the things that our world is dealing with. It's scary, and people are filled with anxiety. They need to meet someone who can point them to the Lord and say, I'm not afraid because my hope isn't in this world. It's in my Lord and Savior, and I trust him. And if I die, I go to be with the Lord. I'm not scared. People need that kind of hope, and they need to see it in your life played out in real life, in real time. Not just reading it in the Bible, but seeing another living person who lives on that truth. Are you that person in someone's life? Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Last section is really quick, but it's about... um, identification, being united with others. Paul's telling us that with the dividing walls down, with the throne room open wide and all believers having access to God, he's saying now everyone, everything that Christ has done has been done to bring us near to God and God's people. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's saying, so then, we, Gentiles, Gentiles, he's like, you're no longer strangers or aliens like you once were. You're no longer ignorant of the peace and the joy and the forgiveness that's been made available. You're no longer foreigners wandering around in a strange country. You're home now. You have a new citizenship. You have a new birthright. You have a new passport. You're part of God's family, in one in Christ. So he's going to tell us a couple of things. He's going to say, first, we're, we're fellow citizens with Christ. Do you know that means that we're fellow citizens with all the heroes of the faith? From the beginning of time to the end of time, we're fellow citizens with all of them. Cross time. We have a new birth certificate. He says we're members of God's household. So that means that we, because we all share the same father, we're all unified by the spirit. We're part of the church. The church isn't just River West Church or whatever church you go to. It's the church around the world. It's the church universal. Every believer in every country belongs to the church. And we're part of that. We're part of that people group now. And we each have a part to do to live life on mission for Christ. And this is the most astounding. We are actually the dwelling place for God's spirit. We're the dwelling place for God's spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into us and we are like living stones being built into a holy temple. And Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one that brings the Jews and the Gentiles together. He's the one that that brings ethnic groups together and genders together. He brings us all together and we're living stones and we're being chiseled through life to fit just perfectly. The Holy Spirit's at work in us and we're fit together to be his light, his testimony, his reflection into this world. We are where he does his work and it's the church. All of us together using our gifts, encouraging each other, um, supporting each other, loving each other, praying for each other, caring for each other. That's the church and Christ is the cornerstone. So he, the truth is that he says, so then we are God's dwelling place on earth. We're it. We're the dwelling place on earth. We're the temple of God's Holy Spirit. God's 
presence is wherever his people are, and believers are the dwelling place of God by his spirit. The temple of Diana in Ephesus is long gone, but the temple of God on this earth is growing. More and more people coming to faith in Christ, becoming living stones, anchored by the cornerstone, spreading the good news of the gospel. God is doing his work here on earth. Now, I want to challenge you with a thought because Western individualism tells us that I can be a living stone apart from a church community. Because we're so individualistic. And so we always think in terms of it's me and my relationship with God. It's all about me and my personal relationship, my Bible. You know, maybe we join with a church, maybe not. We, we feel very individualistic in how we relate with God. But that is not how God created the church. And that's not how he created believers to engage with each other. It's always about community. When we read the scripture, it's always about people together, believers together in community. We need each other. We are meant to come together. It's a lonely world. What a privilege that we have the church. All of us should be a part of a local church, a place where people know us, where we know people. We can pray for each other. We can care for each other. We can hug each other. We can support each other. We can use our gifts to serve and encourage each other. Because it's, it's not a happy place out in the world. It's a hard place. But together, the church is meant to be the body of Christ where, where we come together and we are strengthened and built up um, in our faith. We're meant for that. How are you engaging in your church community, wherever that may be, to love and serve other people? Do you have a church community where you are a part of it? How, do, how are you managing the temptation for individualism even in your Christian faith? How are you, are you recognizing that temptation? Are you stepping out in faith and being part of a community? Are you getting to know your river group? I'm not just like sharing your answers to your questions, but are you getting to know the women in your group and are you allowing them to get to know you? It's, it's really important that we that we know and that we're known. It's very important that we don't live with facades and we don't hide behind um, a persona, but that we're authentic and we really care for each other by, by being true. And how does your life reflect your identity in Christ? Can someone look at you in your workplace and know that you're a Christian by your integrity, by your kindness, by your attentiveness, by your love? Is it obvious that you have a different identity, you're part of God's family? Okay, so this is a really big passage. Now I'm going to test you. How are you going to remember it? Number one, remember. Remember that you were once alienated from God. There's a time in your life or there's a time coming in your life when you're no longer going to be alienated from him. What is your story? Remember, be humble in that. Don't be prideful in that. When you look at the people in your life who are behaving like pagans, it's because they were pagan. They're pagans, and you were too one at one time. <laughs> Remember who you were, that you were alienated. It's very important, and let that spur you to worship. Second word. Now I see you have the cheater on the screen. But now you've been reconciled to Christ. You've been reconciled to God. You've become part of God's people. Jesus is the peacemaker. Think of the cross. Peace with God, peace with other through Christ. But now you've been reconciled and made peace. So then you have a new identity. You are living temples of the Holy Spirit with a call and a plan and a purpose to be in community, to shine forth the light of Christ in a broken world. It's a perfect plan. And you can now go tell somebody else, 
this big book of scripture by those three phrases. So um, will you stand? I'm going to pray and then send you out to your groups to discuss. Father, we are so thankful that you speak the truth to us through your word. We're so thankful that you encourage our hearts. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we are no longer alienated from you. We don't live in a foreign country. We're home in Christ. We have a father who throws open the doors and welcomes us in. Thank you that you are our God and you love us so much. And we have a place to come into your arms and and just be with you and to be with each other. Thank you for community. Thank you for the body of Christ. And thank you, Lord, that you are the peacemaker. I know that probably everybody in this room has a relationship that is desperately in need of a supernatural kind of peace, a peace that that we just can't muster up in our own thinking. It's broken somewhere. There's a relationship that's broken, and we need you to facilitate peace. Help us, Lord, to know how we can be a part of that by reflecting your heart in the broken places of our lives. We desperately need you, Lord. We desperately need you. And we thank you that you are here for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.